From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Aurora has fired its police chief, saying she failed to build morale. We'll get perspective from our justice reporter. Then, the factors contributing to crime. These are things that couldn't have been predicted beforehand. They represent a shock to the system. Are tougher penalties warranted? That's up for debate. What we are seeing is a doubling down on an 80s and 90s crack epidemic all over again. Then a math teacher who's also a DACA recipient on what it's like to see family members work hard but not earn a living wage. We are four whole beautiful gifts, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And Colorado loses a trailblazer in high school sports. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The Aurora police chief, who tried to restore trust within the community, has been fired for not building morale within the police department itself. Chief Vanessa Wilson took charge of a department that's been embattled in recent years. Let's get some perspective on what happened with CPR criminal justice reporter Allison Sherry. Hi, Allison. Hi, Andrea. Tell us a little bit about Chief Vanessa Wilson and her tenure with the department. Yeah, you know, Chief Wilson has been at the department for more than two decades. She was one of those who stuck it out, rose up through the ranks to division chief, was then appointed interim chief, and then full chief in 2020. She is the first woman and the first openly gay person to lead the department. And she's been at the helm probably during the most tumultuous time in the history of the agency. At the time she was appointed to the job, she said she was going to work very hard on building trust in the community. What were the problems city leaders had with her performance? Well, in short, Aurora City Manager Jim Twombly said she didn't work hard enough on managing the actual department. He Hmm. acknowledged her strengths in community outreach, you know, building relationships, meeting people all over. But he said she didn't work enough on building morale and leading from within. And I have some sources inside APD and the rap on her, at least from that police officer perspective, was that she wasn't really ever there and that many of the veteran officers didn't feel like she had their backs. And we should note that the Aurora Police Department has been under scrutiny over the last few years quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. A lot of scrutiny and a lot of change that comes out of, you know, more than two years of controversy. I'll I'll start with the death of Elijah McClain, who I'm sure you remember died after being violently arrested by Aurora police and given ketamine while in custody. His death was among the many cited in the summer of 2020 protests against police violence nationally. Um, And Aurora Um, I'm sorry, Attorney General Phil Weiser was appointed as a special prosecutor by Governor Jared Polis to look into what happened there. And a grand jury ended up indicting the three arresting officers and the two paramedics who administered the ketamine. 
Separately, the attorney general also launched a patterns and practices investigation into the Aurora police to see what happened. And that investigation found a pattern of racist policing, um, you know, over several years. And the agency then entered a consent decree where they basically agreed to overhaul almost every aspect of what they do. So, you know, all of that, Andrea, happened in like just in the last three years. How did Wilson handle all of this when she was a new chief? Well, you know, APD was obviously trying to do about 10 things at the same time under a lot of pressure. I think first and foremost, Chief Wilson tried to burnish the accountability of the department by a lot of outreach. You know, she also started really publicly denouncing officers she thought behaved unprofessionally. You know, I covered the story last August of two Aurora officers who beat up a guy experiencing homelessness that they stopped. And it was remarkable because within a few days of, of that arrest, Chief Wilson held this very large press conference about what happened. She named the officers. She showed reporters the body camera footage. And then she said she'd referred the case to prosecution and put the officers on leave. You know, in all of the misconduct you've covered and I've covered, I've never seen anything move that quickly or anything sort of so bold. Mm-hmm. You know, she put out a press release every time she fired an officer. And she worked really hard to build relations with the community, particularly the communities of color. But I do want to also say that all the while, more than 700 sworn officers are working 24 hours a day in that city, trying to respond to this increasing call volumes and pretty eye-popping increase in violent crime. You know, Aurora had 45 homicides last year. And in one 20-day period in November, 16 kids, teenagers, were shot. And it's been a lot. I think the officers are going through a lot. They're trying to get that consent decree implemented, also while responding to all this at the same time. And I think from their perspective, they just wanted more from her. And we'll be talking about the rise in crime later on in the show. What's been the reaction to her firing? Well, it doesn't seem like anyone's really happy, at least outside of city leadership. Activists, police reformers who've worked in this space say her firing sends a terrible message to the communities who worked really hard on reform. A group of state lawmakers representing Aurora, many of whom are people of color, issued an angry statement saying Chief Wilson held officers who engaged in misconduct accountable and refused to tolerate the status quo. I also spoke with Shanine McLean, who's Elijah McLean's mother, um, and she has struck up a relationship with Chief Wilson over the last couple of years, and she defended her. She said the officers didn't like her because she pushed them to be better, and Shanine also said she didn't really know why officers sort of needed a cheerleader. Even Congressman Jason Crow weighed in and thanked her for her service and was complimentary of her work. What happens now with the leadership at the Aurora Police Department? Yeah, the city manager says they'll do a national search for a replacement. But in the meantime, they've named a division chief, a guy by the name of Chris Jewell, to run the place. They'll likely appoint an interim chief in the next couple weeks. And Vanessa Wilson did also uh, release a statement through her lawyer saying she was really happy with her job. um, And she thanked Aurora for the time she was there. And she wants to continue working in law enforcement. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks, Andrea. CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry. Crime is not just up in Aurora. It's up throughout Colorado. When we come back, we'll get perspective on what's happening, why, and possible solutions. Colorado also has an unenviable rank on the list of states with the highest increase in crime between 2019 and 2020. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin says Colorado hasn't always been this way. Colorado has been a remarkably safe state, uh, Denver as well. 
However, we are trending the wrong direction. We used to be well below the national crime rate for many decades, and then uh, we're starting to see a change. When you're talking about the safety of the people that live, work, and play, not only in Denver, but across the entire state, we need to do something about it. Colorado Public Radio has been looking behind the numbers to understand why crime is rising and what could be done to reverse the trend. David Pyrus is a sociology professor at CU Boulder who studies crime trends. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You've seen the statistics, murders up in Colorado, 47 percent, car thefts up 86 percent. I want to talk about the why of all of this, but let's hear from Chief Pazin again and get his take. He and his officers have a close-up view of what's happening, and he says a lot of it has to do with fentanyl. Fentanyl is something that uh, we are dealing with as a community. It's devastating families. We are having more than one overdose death per day. That is uh, something that our entire community should be very concerned about. So on top of this uh, epidemic of overdose that has been hidden by the pandemic, we also see violence and crime related to some of the narcotic nexus and uh, the issues both on the violence side as well as the property crime side. David, do you see drugs and drug-related crime as one of the main drivers of crime in Colorado? I don't know if it's necessarily the main driver for the rises in property and violent crime in Colorado, but there's certainly a lot of merit as a source of some of the rises in violence. And that has to do primarily with the way that the underground drug market works. To whom do drug dealers deal with their disputes? There's no court, extra legal markets. They don't have third parties to mediate disputes. You can't rely on the police. You don't have uh, you know, prosecutors or defense attorneys. And so you have to rely on the norms of the extra legal markets that govern their behavior. So some of the rises in violence, as well as property crime, could be due to sort of the flooding of fentanyl and other drugs into Colorado. I don't know if it necessarily checks out as the main source of the rise of violence, though. And why aren't there third parties involved in this? Where are the police? Well, the police absolutely uh, want to work to to sort of disarm and deal with supply side interventions. The police don't deal with demand side interventions, so they're not trying to shift the demand uh, for the use of things like methamphetamine or opioids or fentanyl. So the police are absolutely involved in making arrests, but that doesn't have to do or that doesn't change anything in terms of uh, the demand for these drugs. But haven't drugs always been around? I mean, is there more crime related specifically to the illegal drugs being used now, drugs like fentanyl, methamphetamine? Well, you know, if you if you go back to the 1980s, I mean, to the time when crime was at its worst in Colorado, early 1980s is when there was, you know, the peak uh, rates of homicide in the state. I mean, it was about three times as bad per capita then than it is now. Uh, and that's attributed primarily to the crack cocaine uh, market. A lot of those markets, though, were eventually disrupted. And, uh, you know, the drug dealing moved either inside uh, or it just became less violent than it was in the past. 
So, I mean, I, I don't necessarily know. I mean, it remains an open question if, you know, the methamphetamine, heroin, synthetic opioid markets were responsible for some of the rises in violence. But, you know, the drugs have always been there. It's just fentanyl has really taken hold, not just in Colorado, but across the country. You know, rates of fentanyl overdoses, which, you know, is a close proxy uh, for the use of fentanyl, has just skyrocketed in the last five years. So I do think that there's merit to it. I don't necessarily think uh, that it explains everything about the rises in violence. Paisen blames some of this on a bipartisan law passed in 2019. It removed felony penalties for possession of less than four grams of most types of drugs. The problem is, Paisen and others say, is that four grams of fentanyl is enough to kill not one, but many, many people. What's your take on lessening penalties around possession? Has that increased crime? The way... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is this is a tough question to answer. A, a criminal offending population is sensitive towards the certainty of being punished far more than the severity of being punished. That being said, you know, laws that prohibit the rest, arrest of people for low level crimes could have absolutely led to a rise in crime. You know, there's no sort of, you know, time out for that arrest. There's no intervention, whether it's, you know, programs or services, issuing tickets as opposed to making arrests can preclude the policing of, say, hotspots or more problem-oriented policing, targeting places like, like a union station, for example. And so it's, you know, I think there is some merit behind that argument. It's going to be really tricky to tease out whether, you know, these bipartisan reforms actually led to changes in crime. 2014 is where we could really pinpoint some of the the rises in in property and violent crime in Colorado. And there has been a lot of legislative reform over the course of those years. But there was also legislative reform that occurred before those years, too. So the task for criminologists like myself and others is going to be to figure out just how different was Colorado over these years versus prior years and whether we can pinpoint that to statewide reforms. And I should say, Pazin's pointed out other reform legislation, one law that reduced penalties for auto theft. Auto thefts are up a staggering 86% and changes in laws allowing more people to be released from jail when they're awaiting trial. But David, generally, this isn't a Colorado-specific issue. You talked about that. Crime is up nationally. There must be factors that have nothing to do with Colorado laws. Absolutely. And so, you know, we had a pandemic that uh, went into effect uh, March 2020. We also had considerable social unrest that was tied to the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Those are two of the leading explanations that criminologists are pointing to. And, you know, in Colorado, crime was already on a, a bad trajectory. You know, we were already moving in the wrong direction in this state. But what happened with the rises in violence in 2020, moving into all the way through 2022, represented a market shift. You know, to be able to see 30 and 50 percent increases in the rise of homicide is some of the largest we've seen in this state on record. Nationally, though, there were 5,000 more people murdered in 2020 than there were in 2019. 
So this is why criminologists tend to point to the pandemic and George Floyd as the sources of some of these increases. We call these things exogenous shocks. These are things that couldn't have been predicted beforehand. They represent a shock to the system. So COVID, for example, you know, everything was thrown into disarray. You're working from home, or if you're forced to work in person, you're working in an infectious environment. Uh, kids are getting schooled by Zoom. Churches are being shut down. Social gatherings are eliminated. They're distanced. They're impersonal. And justice is delayed because courts were operating via Zoom. And so the norms changed in our society. And whenever there's a state of normlessness, we don't, it means that we can't operate off the scripts that we normally rely on. And some of these scripts are as simple as commuting to work and what are the norms for behavior when you're driving. But they could also be norms related to dispute resolution. When you have people crowded back in their neighborhoods and working from home and there's a neighbor that's playing loud music or there's cars driving down the street um, loudly and it just it changes the way people interact with each other. And so COVID could be a part of that. But also you got to take into account, you know, the mental health concerns, unemployment and so on. That was uh, a product of COVID, too. But then you have the social unrest related to George Floyd. And, you know, we think of that as a legitimacy crisis that it induced. And a legitimacy crisis can have three offshoots that we think of. One, it could be the delegitimizing of the law and its gatekeepers. Uh, so it sort of leads to a trust depletion with mm -hmm. the police. You don't want to rely on the police like you've done it in the past to call the police on, you know, that teenager who's wearing a hoodie and looks suspicious walking down the street because you don't want that kid to be the next Tamir Rice. The second component of this is depolicing, the withdrawal of the police from the public sphere. It's not the complete withdrawal, but what it means is the police are going to be less rigorous in their enforcement of the law. And by that, it is the proactive forms of policing that we absolutely know can reduce violence in communities. I'm not saying that policing doesn't have consequences, whether it's you know physical or mental health for communities. What I'm saying is when police you know, police their communities proactively, uh, when they arrest people for outstanding warrants, when they investigate suspicious persons in communities, uh, when they do make stops of cars, um, and those are things that lead to getting guns off the streets, they lead to getting people with outstanding warrants off the streets, uh, and it results in ultimately safer communities, especially when those resources are deployed toward the hot spots where crime is most prevalent. The last component of this is what's referred to as, uh, it's like an emboldenment hypothesis in the sense that when the criminal justice system pulls back, people feel like they are no longer bound by the authority of the law. It's almost like it's not necessarily just those who commit crime, but it's also those who commit, who are on the margins of committing crime. And it's tied, you know, as you could imagine, to things like COVID in the sense that, you know, there is a normlessness that exists in our communities. And when those that normlessness exists, it leads people to no longer obey the authority of the law because the law no longer has its influence 
on people's behaviors. We also spoke with Justin Cooper about the rise in crime. Cooper's with the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. The group's push for reform laws around crime and punishment. It advocates for communities generally, as well as for people convicted of crimes and victims of crime. Cooper says community challenges are really at the root of crime. As we have long known, like the increase in crime is always tied with housing insecurities, drug misuse and abuse, gun sales, unemployment, mental health struggles, family disruption of violence, and a lack of access to services. These are all contributing factors to when you experience, or any state for that matter, experiences an increase in crime. And I think that that particular narrative is really missing from the broader narrative that our state is facing right now about what to do. So we'll talk about the question of what to do. Uh, Cooper also points to a rise in homelessness. And a lot of what he talks about are these larger issues communities are facing. What's your take on this? I mean, Mr. Cooper, is he's 100 percent right in the sense that I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that the rises in violence and the data that I've analyzed has been in Denver. I haven't seen it in other large cities uh, at the neighborhood level in like Colorado Springs or say Boulder or Aurora, but the rises in crime were concentrated disproportionately in the neighborhoods that suffer from those disadvantages that he describes in the areas that have highest unemployment, that have low rates of high school graduation and education. These are places with higher poverty and so on. So, for example, if you look at the distribution across the city of Denver of the neighborhoods that saw the biggest increases in violence, you know, it's in places like East Colfax and in Green Valley Ranch and Mont Velo and Park Hill. They're the ones who tend to suffer the most uh, when there is an increase in violence in our communities. Other communities were able to weather the storm, the COVID storm, the social unrest storm, the fentanyl storm, um, much better than some of the areas that are just lower resourced. And those are the communities that need the most amount of support when you do see changes in crime in our communities. And when you're talking about support, what do you mean? Uh, By support, I mean, for one, you want to develop strengths in the community. You think of it like a strengths-based approach. You want the community to police itself. You want it to be able to rely on informal social control. You don't want it to have to be the police who are the peacekeepers. Uh, You want the grandparents and the parents and the priests and the school teachers who are the ones who are, you know, regulating the disputes among, you know, young people in the community, to monitor the kids. You want people to look after the neighbors. And so when I say support, what that means is strong investments in communities from education to after school programs, to jobs programs, to health related to physical or mental health that could allow them to be their most successful selves. This hints at the whole idea of economic conditions and to the question of whether poor economic conditions lead to more crime. Denver Police Chief Pazin doesn't think so. Oftentimes, we talk about crime being tied to the economic conditions. 
And uh, we make that assumption that when the economy suffers, that we see an increase in crime. Uh, we did some analysis. We have some recent examples that we can look at. The Great Recession, 2008 through 2012. And uh, if you look at Colorado versus the national average during that same time period, there was not an increase in crime. There was not an increase in robberies, shootings, murders, burglaries. We stayed relatively flat during that time period. Similarly, if you look at today from an economic rating, we're number six. So Colorado has bounced back in many aspects. He means the state has bounced back economically, and yet still crime has gone up. How do you see the economy playing into crime rates? Well, when we talk about the economy and crime, we got to differentiate between unemployment, but then uh, what, what we think of as better indicators that tend to fluctuate with crime, and that tends to be consumer sentiment and inflation. And when I'm saying consumer sentiment, this is the University of Michigan has a measure of consumer sentiment that asks people, are you better off today than you were last year? What's your outlook on the economy today? And what's your outlook on the future? So in recent months, it's really tanked. Really, we could attribute that back uh, to April 2021 when we saw outlook on the economy start to fall. Uh, and it has dropped to great recession levels from 2007. So consumer sentiment is part of this, but uh, inflation is probably a bigger part of it. Uh, and crime tends to fluctuate. Uh, and when I say crime, I mean economic crimes. So acquisitive crimes, things like robbery, burglary, motor vehicle theft. So once inflation starts to shift and increase, as prices start to rise and incomes don't catch up, stolen goods start to become more appealing, especially for more low-income consumers who have a greater difficulty weathering the storm. And I, I want to point out that the rises in crime, like what caused the initial increase in Colorado specifically, but in the United States generally, starting in like the summer of 2020, may be different from what sustained the rises in crime. So even if the pandemic and the George Floyd unrest were the sources of the initial increase, it could be the case that consumer sentiment and inflation are sustaining its increase into 2022, as opposed to leading to like a regression back to the mean or a reduction of violent crime and property crime back to what it was in 2019. David Pyrus is a sociology professor at CU Boulder who studies crime trends. When we come back, we'll talk about solutions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. We recorded an episode of Colorado Matters at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility, interviewing two women who are incarcerated and who are learning to make radio. You can either wake up in the morning and go to your job of cleaning toilets and then go back to bed and that's your life. Like yeah. it's a choice, right? Or you can choose to push yourself. We ask questions of them. They also ask questions of us. I'm Elaine Tassi. And I'm Ryan Warner. Listen everywhere you get podcasts. Let's get back to my conversation about some of the reasons behind the rising crime rate in Colorado. I'm speaking with David Pyrus. He's a sociology professor at CU Boulder who studies crime trends. 
Let's move on to solutions. Public safety officials have been advocating for stricter laws around drug possession. Currently, a bipartisan bill would, among other things, increase penalties for people dealing with smaller amounts of drugs. It would also force users caught with fentanyl into education and treatment programs. Pazin and others say this still won't do enough to get at people dealing lower levels of drugs like fentanyl. What's your take about what needs to be done around drug laws? Uh, When it comes to drug markets and the associated laws uh, for punishing people who are involved in the distribution of drugs, uh, it is necessary to have some level of certainty, uh, to increase the level of certainty that uh, drug dealers will be detected and then punished for their crimes. I I don't think that there's any dispute surrounding that. I don't necessarily know if uh, more severity in the punishment is going to produce the outcomes that we would like. Ideally, we'd be targeting more on the demand side as opposed to the supply side to try to focus on prevention campaigns, intervention campaigns that target the users Uh, that will prevent them from seeking drugs like fentanyl, while also going after mid-level, upper-level distributors in communities. Uh, What we do not want to do is to punish users. If we revert back to uh, the 1980s, where we punish uh, drug possessors and it results in incarceration, that's a bad move. We don't want to move back to this punitive era that leads us to a state of the next level of mass incarceration. Along those lines, Justin Cooper says these proposals will only increase the number of people Colorado puts in prison and the cost to taxpayers. He talks about the pendulum with crime and punishment that swings from harsh punishments to criminal justice reform and back every decade or so. What we are seeing is a doubling down on what I perceive to be an 80s and 90s crack epidemic all over again with a tough on crime law and order response to this that we know has not worked. The correlation of reforms over the last decade as a factor in driving the increase in crime. I want to see the research and the data that actually proves that. David, is there data to show that criminal justice reforms in general have led to more crime? There's not much. We had been in the punitive era of criminal justice for decades, and not until really the 2010s and probably the mid-2010s have we seen consistent reforms starting to be introduced by state legislators across the country. So it is very difficult to pinpoint any sort of reform as being a source of changes in property and violent crime in our communities at this point. And do you see this potential push toward tougher punishments as leading to more people in prison once again? Uh, It could, possibly. Um, I mean, the the jury's still out. I think there is a lot of fear, especially in the reform communities, to see a lot of their grassroots efforts that have led to these reforms being undone and undone so swiftly, unlike what we've experienced over the last five decades uh, that has led 
to the growth of mass incarceration in the United States. I've also heard the argument that more people in prisons in the 90s and 2000s kept folks from committing crimes, put them behind bars and not out where they could commit more crimes. That might be an explanation for the subsequent lower crime rate. How do you see that argument? I mean, there's some evidence to show uh, that rises in incarceration uh, were associated with reductions in violence in communities. But I want to put this in the broader context of, you know, we hit peak levels of violence in the early 1990s in the United States. And this was around the time when mass incarceration was in full effect, building of prisons uh, throughout the United States. I think there's some pretty good evidence to show that the incarceration of criminal offenders can have an incapacitation effect that can reduce some levels of crime in communities. But I want to be clear, it's not the only source of uh, the reductions in crime. There is still no consensus among criminologists of what was responsible for what we call the criminological miracle, which was in the early 1990s uh, through the early 2000s, we saw violence reduce in the aggregate across the United States by 50%. It's highly disputed what led to the reductions in violence. Some people point to changes in drug markets, particularly the crack cocaine market. Others point to mass incarceration. Still others point to uh, a booming economy toward the late 1990s. And there are plenty of other explanations too, including proactive policing. So there is no resolution to that. And the sources of the reduction of violence may be different from the sources of the rise in violence that we've seen from 2015 forward. David, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. David Pyrus is a sociology professor at CU Boulder who studies crime trends. We've been talking about some of the reasons behind the rising crime rate in Colorado and what changes might reverse that trend. Colorado lost an important voice this week with the passing of Tom Robinson. In 2001, Robinson became the first black administrator hired by the Colorado High School Activities Association, known as CHASA. Robinson worked as a teacher, coach, and referee. He was even the replay official for the 2017 NCAA College Football National Championship game. The husband of Cleo Parker Robinson, Tom also helped found the iconic Denver Dance Company. Most people described Robinson as a quiet, unassuming man. Rashawn Davis is an assistant commissioner with CHASA who worked with Robinson for years. He's just low-key and unassuming, of course, and just cool and, you know, insightful and always understanding kind of what we needed in this job. And I, I can't say that enough for sure. Over time, Davis said his relationship with Robinson expanded beyond the workplace. Absolutely mentor, but also just a, a father figure. As I talk about my own children with him, you know, I have two boys and one of them wants to get into officiating. And so we had some conversations about that early on. And, and Tom said, you know, give me his phone number. I'm going to call him myself and, and, and talk him through it. And, you know, to have that personal touch, it's just Tom. 
you just knew what you needed and, and filled your bucket. Rashawn Davis says it's difficult to imagine the void that'll be left by Robinson's passing. I would just say that for us in the office, Tom is so many things. He's the voice of reason. He's he's definitely someone to vent through and, and with. He bounces ideas well. He breaks down concepts and thoughts. And man, he, he's everything to our staff. And his passing is going to hurt for a long time. And it's going to be felt across the state, if not the nation, for all the work that he did at that level as well. And, you know, the, the thing that I take away from, from Tom is, is to think first, is, is to understand why you're doing what you're doing, who you're doing it for, and, you know, really come to things in a way that allows you to see everything first. So, you know, I, I, oh, man, just a gift of a human being. Rashawn Davis helping us remember Tom Robinson. Robinson died Monday. He was 76 years old. He's survived by his wife, Cleo, son, Malik, and three grandchildren. Details regarding a memorial celebration have not yet been finalized. You can read more about Robinson at denverite.com. The enormous T-Rex may have been a terror to all it encountered, but it was not invincible. It could be taken down by a 25-foot-long armor-clad plant-eater, Ankylosaurus. The Ankylosaurus stood relatively low to the ground. A narrow beak helped it strip leaves from plants, but it was built like a tank, studded with spikes. Bones and other body parts fused together to make it stronger. Its most fearsome feature? The tail, where plates merged into a thick club. One swing could easily shatter the bones of a T-Rex. The Ankylosaur roamed slowly across Colorado 60-some million years ago, and its seven-ton body left deep footprints on Skyline Drive near Canyon City, heading west through ancient marshlands. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Starbucks workers in Superior began voting by mail Tuesday on whether to unionize, and more Colorado stores may follow. Here's CPR's Matt Bloom. A group of Starbucks baristas walked off the job last month in Denver, carrying signs and calling out the company's CEO. And if Kevin Johnson gets in the way, we're going to roll over him. We're going to roll the union on. They were among the first in the state employed by the coffee chain to file for a union election to join Starbucks Workers United chapter of the massive service employees international union and the culture of coffee has like definitely taken a second spot to um business you know vanessa castro is a shift supervisor at the store she says they were inspired by baristas in buffalo new york and 10 other stores that have won elections in recent months it's more all about getting the quotas the money out the window times than it is about connecting and like lifting each other up within the team Castro and other employees across the state say they want better wages to keep up with the cost of living. They're also looking for more structured weekly schedules and looser rules around things like tipping. The company, meanwhile, has pushed back on organizing efforts. A Starbucks spokeswoman declined an interview but said the company invested over a billion dollars in wage increases this past year, bringing the average hourly pay for baristas in the U.S. to $17 an hour. 
people are like, oh, that's a lot of money to make an hour. I'm like, oh, no, it really isn't. Len Harris is a shift supervisor at the Superior Store, the first location in Colorado to start voting. But it's so much more than wages. It's also like beyond just Starbucks. It's also a means to teach people to take back, you know, like so many workers are suffering in America. It's not just Starbucks. The attitude among Harris and other organizers is pretty common in Colorado's workforce these days, says Jeffrey Zacks, an economics professor at CU Boulder. Uh, This is a moment when the workers have an unusual amount of market power uh, and employers who are not aware of that or not responding to it are certainly provoking workers to think more carefully about how the workers can use their power. Harris and workers at the Superior Store have about three weeks to vote. Five other stores that have filed to hold union elections with the National Labor Relations Board, including two in Colorado Springs, are still waiting on their election dates. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. Ten years ago this June, the U.S. government created a new program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. It gave children brought to the U.S. from other countries temporary protection from deportation, and it made them eligible for college and jobs. Leading up to the anniversary, we're sharing monologues written by DACA recipients. They're part of a podcast series from Boulder-based Modus Theater. Today, Alejandro Fuentes Mena tells the story of his hardworking parents and his path to becoming a teacher. It's called Deport Me. I was just a kid when I realized what being undocumented meant. At age eight, I started going to work with my dad so I could help him rebuild the entire outside of other people's homes, all the while not having a real home of our own. I would see my dad as he calculated. I would help him do the math. I would research and discover that for this job, people would charge $20,000. He had been screwed over so many times that he decided he was only going to charge $15,000. They would see his strength in Spanish, his lack of English and documented status, and give him about $10,000. And that's who my father believed he was. Half the man I thought he was. Half the value of any other. I witnessed as my mother would leave for an entire weekend, 72 hours, to take care of someone else's family. And that entire weekend, she was lured with the promise of over $300 for her work, but she would come back with only $100 in her pocket. $100 that she saw as a blessing. $100 that I saw as an attack on our family. All those rich families saw little value in everything my mom did for them. They would take her away only to use her and spit her out. The money they paid her was barely enough for food on the table. It didn't cover the worry my mom had because she couldn't be home to take care of us when we were sick, help us with homework, comfort us when we returned to an empty house. A hundred dollars for a whole weekend away from her family? Like she was worthless? But don't you understand? She was priceless to me. Well, spending my weekends without my mom as she cared for other people's children and spending those weekends working for my dad for free 
so he wouldn't lose money for the privilege of building a home for someone else's family. And witnessing this over and over and over again, I began to think that I wasn't worth much either. Despite the fact that I had been recognized at school as gifted and talented, despite the fact that I was a math whiz, that I learned English, a completely unknown language in about a year, and that I was an engaged student, despite the fact I was the precocious worship leader at my church, I let those weekends of feeling worthless affect me. I began making jokes rather than making plans for my future, playing games rather than paying attention, chasing girls rather than chasing my dreams, and like all self-fulfilling prophecies, I got to the point where my grades reflected what society said my parents and I were worth. Half-priced human beings. But luckily, I had a teacher named Ms. Kovacic who worked hard to remind me of my value and helped convince me that what this society was telling me and my family was wrong. With her support, and that of many others, I got myself out of that pit of self-deprecation, past the insecurities, past the hate, past the negativity, past that half version of me, into a good college, and into a position where I am now an educator who teaches math. And like my mentors, I teach young children of their value. Because all children are valuable, just as you and I are valuable. As a teacher, I can't help myself. Let me take you to school for a few moments. Y'all good with that? So let's start off with a little math lesson. My father is one man, one of the hardest workers I know. My mother is one woman, one of the strongest and most compassionate individuals in my life. My sister is one daughter, a brat, but a lovable one, and an American citizen. And I'm one son, half of this country and half of Chile, but we are four whole beautiful gifts, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, not the half-priced individuals that society has attempted to make us. And moving to applied math and economics, if this country continues to deport the undocumented community, it is missing out on courageous, strong, intelligent, family-loving, hard-working people of great value. And that is not only our loss, it is your loss to miss out on us. Not to mention the billions in taxes we bring in every year, which is billions more than large corporations are paying. Lastly, moving beyond math to ethics, paying an undocumented person half of their value for their life's work, extracting all you can get from them to build your homes, and take care of your families, and then deporting them as if they had not brought value, is not just mathematically flawed. It is also an American math story problem gone wrong. It is criminal to treat us as subservient and less desirable. I'm living in this country undocumented, 
teaching your children, supporting them, engaging their minds in math and in their dreams. I'm 100% here. And I'm 100% committed to this country in which I was raised. This country that constantly seeks to spit me out. Lose me and you lose my value. Not just the money I pay in taxes, the money I pay into a social security that I would never be able to benefit from, but you lose my ability to inspire, connect, and engage. You lose my ability to bring an impact. You lose the knowledge I bring to my students who are your children. This country would be foolish to lose me. So, deport me. Deport me. Because in the end, it's your loss. Alejandro Fuentes Mena, a DACA recipient, reading his monologue, Deport Me. The monologue is part of the Undocu America project from Boulder-based Modus Theater. You can watch Fuentes Mena read his own story live on stage in Denver on Wednesday, June 15th. That's the 10-year anniversary of DACA. The readings are also compiled in a podcast. We'll put a link at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. And each reading on the podcast is followed by music. For Fuentes Mena's story, the music is by Oso Matli. It's a Latin hip-hop band. The song is Cuando Canto. Cuando canto mi canción Quiero inspirar mi gente con una solución Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.